pray together. Gracious Father, we want to thank you this morning that uh, you are a good God who pours out abundant grace on your people. Lord, as we've sung this morning of grace on top of grace, of your amazing grace to us, Lord, we, we want to reflect this morning once again on the cross, on the grace that's been poured out to us there. May our hearts be filled with joy this morning. And as we turn to your word and we, we look again to see how your grace transforms us, and as we sometimes look within and despair at how little we have actually changed, may we once again draw hope and draw life in your spirit by the gospel, draw us once again to the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This may shock and stun some of you. You may want to rethink my role as your pastor and your involvement in our church. But Bernice and I don't always agree. I know, I know, who would have thought it? And it's not just that we don't always agree on what movie to watch or on what we're going to have for supper tonight, but there are times when we disagree on Bible issues, on theology. It doesn't become a 30-year war of attrition, should just point that out, but we do sometimes disagree. Last week, last Saturday evening, we had a friendly discussion. Not a major marriage-ending opinion, but something that drew different conclusions regarding the will of God. What is the will of God and how do we figure that out? So if you want a slightly different opinion of what I'm presenting to you this morning, speak to my wife later during the week. All right. The, the issue of God's will and knowing God's will, there are all sorts of nuances, right? And it can sometimes feel a little complicated. And there are all sorts of opinions as to how this works out and how it is that you can understand God's will and what His will for your life is. On the one hand, you've got those who, who seem to live in an almost perpetual state of fear because you're unsure of, am I in or out of the will of God? And so we're told in various circles that you need to be sure that you're in God's will. And so we live with a bit of uncertainty. Am I sure that this is actually God's will for my life? And so you will need to spend hours in agonizing prayer and fasting in order to determine whether or not it's God's will that you eat all bran or cornflakes for breakfast. Because if you re eat the wrong one, you're out of God's will. So I resolved that issue by just putting them both in, my same, in the same bowl together. I find that, that is just a winning breakfast combination right there. Of course, that kind of thinking of, I, I need to know that I'm in God's will and I might be out of His will, it, it, it doesn't just lead people to all sorts of kind of uncertainty and fear, but it also gives them a handy excuse to get out of things when things don't work out as we'd hoped and planned. So I've had this happen to me more often than I care to recount over the last 15 or 20 years of ministry. A gentleman will come to me and will say, I'm divorcing my wife because I realize now that when I married her 15 years ago, I was out of God's will. And I've discovered that it's God's will for me all along to marry this young lady who I met at the office party last week. 
And my response is to go, um, no. I think you've misunderstood God's will in all of that. Um, no, apparently missing God's will is not an excuse to get a divorce. You didn't miss him and his will 15 years ago. You're just being disobedient now. I don't know, just to just be clear, I know some people have been divorced and you got divorced because it got bad. And to be clear, you got divorced because he sinned against you, not because you missed God's will somewhere. And then it gets even more weird when you need to have a sign in order to show you what you need to do. And again, I've had people say something similar to this to me before, several times. Um, I need to know God's will for my life. And so I'm going to watch this flight of the sparrow. And if the sparrow goes to the left, it means that God wants me to emigrate to Australia. And if it goes to the right, then God wants me to emigrate to Bloemfontein. And then the pesky bird flies straight and gets taken out by a falcon and a puff of feathers. And then like, how do we interpret this sign? <laughs> Don't move. That's clearly God's will. Don't move. Um, I think the, sign, the way we interpret that is just that the sparrow is stupid and the falcon was hungry. I, I don't know if you need to determine more. You know, if you're going to determine where you're going to live based on the flight of a bird, you have bigger issues. And then I said a few weeks ago, you remember this, uh, that, that particularly as young people, and there are a few of them here today, you, you, you're kind of going through life going, I, I wonder what job I should do when I grow up. I'm still wondering what I'm going to do when I grow up. Uh, haven't grown up yet. Um, and, and do you remember I said this, you know, there's a determination or the choice between do I become a plumber or a urologist, which is really the same job, but just with different sized pipes. Um, and how do I make that decision? How do I decide what to do? And I, I need God to spell that out in tea leaves for me somehow. And usually the best answer to figure out how to know what to do with my life is to, to pray to speak to wise people who know, if you're wondering about plumbing, then spend a day with Damon and he'll send you down to a cesspit and you can decide if that's really what you want to do with your life. Use your gray matter that God has given you and then jolly well go ahead and make a decision. On the other extreme, so that's the one side. We're fearful, we don't know what God's will is, we've got to figure it out, we need science to determine what to do. On the other side, you've got those who are overly fatalistic. Who live in this world of life is a completely predetermined set of events and what will be will be. And I may as well just sit on the couch and if it's God's will that I get a job, someone will knock on the door and offer one to me. And until that happens, I'm just going to sit on the couch and do some online gaming, 8 hours, 10 hours a day. It's clearly God's will. Some of you, I'm not looking at you because you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> and it's clearly God's will for my life right now that I eat Doritos and drink energy drinks. That's God's will for my life. I've got to say, I think the Bible is a little bit bigger when it comes to God's will than just trying to figure out what to do tomorrow and what I should have for breakfast. And so you read, for example, in, in the book of Timothy, where, where, where Paul says, it's God's will that all people be saved. I'm summarizing. And then this becomes then a big theological conundrum. If it's really God's will that everyone be saved, well, then surely everyone will be saved, right? Because it's God's will and God accomplishes his will. But, on the other hand, if you look around the world today, you go, uh, it doesn't look like everyone's going to be saved because it, does, it just doesn't look like that. So now you've got the question, well, is God just not able to accomplish his will? How can he get his, I mean, if, if, and, and if that's the case, if God can't do his will, is God somehow weak? Are there things that God can't do? Is God somehow limited? And it becomes a, a major theological debate and discussion. And I'm not giving you the answer to that today. Isn't that exciting? 
And in fact, because what we find more and more in the New Testament is that when it becomes an issue of what God's will is, the New Testament tends not to focus too much on where you should live, what job you should do, who you should marry, or what you should eat for breakfast. In Ephesians chapter 5, for example, Paul lists a whole lot of Christian behaviors. He says, don't get drunk, don't be greedy, don't be obscene. And then he says this, understand what God's will is. And his point is that God's will is somehow connected to the way you, the way you live, the things you do, not necessarily you know, the place you live. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter. We're going to find the same thing in Thessalonians this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read there. And, and it's good news for you this morning because I'm going to tell you what God's will for your life is. Aren't you excited? Some of you are 80 years old and you're finally going to hear what God's will is. I'm not looking at you, Georgina. Someone close to you, though. Um, and you're going to finally find out what God's will for my life is. This is exciting. Tomorrow you'll be able to eat your cornflakes in comfort and ease. Knowing that you've got God's will just down. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm just going to read the first eight verses this morning. Finally, my brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So this may turn out to be a bit of disappointment. I'm not going to tell you how to, um, uh, how to interpret the flight of swallows or how to read tea leaves. I'm not going to give you seven helpful hints on how to figure out what to have for breakfast tomorrow. But here is God's will for your life. That you be holy. That's it. That you be holy. There was a big word in there that we read, right? That you be sanctified. And that's just a big word that means holy, right? It's like saints. That's what it comes from. That's what they're all connected to. Saints and sanctified. Be holy. And sanctified is perhaps a little bit better than just be holy. It is more about the process of becoming holy. So the issue of God's will then is not down to bran or, or bran or cornflakes, but rather which of these two choices will lead to holiness. And so when it comes to the bigger decisions of life, do I emigrate to Paris or Paris? I know which one God would call me to. The bigger issue is how do I pursue holiness in either of those places? Is it possible to be holy in Paris? I don't know. Urologist or plumber? The issue is, can I be holy in either of those decisions? So, so you get it? That the big issue of God's will for your life is that you, be, that you become increasingly holy. That you be increasingly sanctified. And so we need to examine this whole sanctification thing for a moment. And what we'll find is a couple of hints about what sanctification is in this passage. And then Paul uses a very specific example 
to say this is what it looks like in this particular area of your life. So what is sanctification? Well, let me put out a couple of other big words for you this morning, right? I, I know you struggle early morning words like marmalade are difficult. Here's some even worse ones. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is just a fancy word that means that Jesus has declared us righteous before God. That once upon a time, when we came in faith to Jesus, He took our sin and says, before God, when God looks at you, He sees Jesus, you are declared righteous. Right? It's a one-off event. It's a moment that happened. Jesus paid our price for us. And just so that you're reassured, there is no saint in church history that is more justified than you are right now. So you are as justified as Paul was. You are as justified as John the Baptist was. It is an objective declaration about what you are that God makes about you. Glorification is also a one-off event. And it will happen when you die. Or when Jesus comes, whichever comes first. And it's that moment of complete change and transformation where, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the, the, the mortal body will put on immortality and we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye and we become what we were meant to be. The total final transformation. Right? So justification is the beginning of your Christian walk. Glorification is what happens when we move on to the next stage of life. This in-between moment that we're living now, we are in the process of sanctification. And it just means our gradual grow, growing in righteousness that is made possible by the Holy Spirit at work in us. So those three big words. In being justified, we have been redeemed from the penalty of sin. In our sanctification, we are currently being set free from the power of sin. And in our glorification one day, we will finally be set free from the presence of sin. So if you're a Christian, you have been declared righteous. You will one day be completely perfect and pure. But you know, as well as I do, that in this world, here and now, we still struggle every day with indwelling sin. If you don't struggle every day with indwelling sin, you may leave now. You are perfect. In fact, you're, you're ready to go to heaven. Um, but I suspect most of us will stay because we struggle day by day with indwelling sin. We fight the world. We fight our old nature. We fight the very devil himself. And that battle and that slow progress and sometimes occasional regression is all about the onward, ongoing process of sanctification. It is a process that will continue until the day you die. And here's what Paul calls to these people here at Thessalonia, and, and he calls to us to the same, that we live our lives in a way that will please God. And that's what sanctification looks like. That your life, after meeting Jesus, should change. Your life should be different from what it once was. You used to live to please yourself. Or perhaps you lived to please your mom. Some of us still have mom's voice in our heads, and we're still living to please mom. We've got to make the bed the way mom told me. because, And so we're still living to please others, right? Or maybe you're living to please your friends and neighbors, your colleagues, your 
Maybe you're living to please the idols and false gods that you set up, your idols of control and comfort. And the call from Paul to us is this, I urge you more and more to let go of those things and live to please God. And there is a lifestyle change that is called upon us and there's a lifestyle change that is meant to take place in our lives when the gospel comes. And so just to get this all right, and again, I think we, we, we know this, but it's always helpful to be reminded of stuff that we know. We do not change ourselves in order to make ourselves more acceptable to God. Okay? We don't try hard to be better so that God will pat us on the head and say, well done. He accepts us because of what Jesus has done. That's the whole justification thing, the one-off event. He accepts us because of what Jesus has done. He does not accept us because of what we're trying to do. The change that takes place in us is because of Him in us. And it's difficult, I know, because it's so easy to think of this as some sort of like pursuit of morality. And it's in fact what a lot of people think Christianity is all about. That Christianity really is just a, a way or a means to, to be good. It's a means to be a better person. And so you've got to be religious, you've got to try hard, be better, be nice. And if you do well enough, then God will applaud and He might even let you into heaven because you're a good person. But that's just moralistic nonsense. Okay? There, are, there are lots of Buddhists who are very good. And there are lots of Hindus who are very good. And there are lots of atheists who are even gooder than I am. So it's certainly not a case of be good, God will like you. Sanctification is, is kind of the opposite of that. Sanctification is the result of what Jesus has done in us. And it is a response to Him and not an appeal for Him. But again, it so often becomes this moralistic thing. And sometimes this moralistic righteousness works its way into the church. So as an example, well, the, the Bible will say, and I read it earlier, or mentioned earlier, the Bible will say, don't get drunk, or, or don't get greedy, or don't fall into a rage. And, and it starts to sound a little bit like, try harder, be better. And people will go around wagging the fingers, don't, don't do that, that's bad, that's naughty. And part of me goes, well, what's wrong with that anyway? I mean, our world would be a better place if everyone just tried harder to be nicer, wouldn't it? But here's what's wrong with it. because Christianity is not just morality in disguise. And so the, the, the problem with just pursuing a, a, a morality that's just a bit of behavioral change is that it actually doesn't lead to holiness. Oh, it might lead to, that might lead to behavioral change, but it doesn't lead to holiness. It leads to you becoming a Pharisee. See, here's what happens when someone in church says we must pursue morality. They say, I'll be good. I will not touch alcohol. In fact, I don't even drink liquid fruit if it's a day old because it might have started to ferment. No, dare not. And if I can do that, then why on earth can't everyone else be like me? In fact, they should be like me. Throw your liquid fruit away. It's bad for you. Others are weak. And I begin to look down my nose at those who just can't seem to let go of their addiction to liquid fruit. I become pure and self-righteous. And I may not touch a drop, but I'm drunk on pride. And I'm a long way from sanctification. 
And so we don't pursue an external, moralistic, legalistic, religious self-righteousness because that does not lead to holiness. It leads to judgmental, pharisaical behavior. So what is sanctification then? How does that work about? It comes from a a gospel-driven sense of righteousness that is pursued by the Holy Spirit. And so moralism says, I'm going to try harder and I can achieve. But the gospel says, I'm a sinful man and I need help. Moralism says, I'm going to try harder to be better. I can push myself. But the gospel pushes us back to the cross and says, see your great need and see your great savior. Moralism gets us to change our behavior, but the gospel looks deeper and transforms the heart. Now here's the hard bit, and I think some of you have experienced this. John Piper says that sanctification is the act of God by which He, through His Spirit and His Word, is conforming you, and this is the tough bit, little by little into the image of His Son. And I find, for me, that that's the hard bit, that it is little by little And that the work is slow. Several years ago, John Piper was hosting a pastor's conference. And there was some Q&A afterwards. John's an ex-Baptist pastor, a retired pastor in America. And um, in this conference, there was a Q&A. And one of the pastors said to John, and I can't remember the exact wording, but where do you get, I don't know, disappointed with God or frustrated with God? Where do you see, where where do you just get a little bit angry with your Christian life? Where does it just like, uh?" And, and part of the reason he asked that question was, John and his church had just gone through some really difficult times. There'd been a, a bridge that had collapsed in the city and a couple of church members had died in that collapse. One of John's family members had, um, had just been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And so there was a, there was a, lot, of, there was a lot of suffering, there was a lot of hardship in, in the church and in the home at the moment. And, and the expectation was, I get frustrated and I struggle with my faith when I see all the difficulty and hardship and how do I push through that? And John's response was, I get frustrated when I see the slow progress of change in my own heart. And I just think for me that's often so true. I look at myself week after week, month after month, and I go, I just don't seem to see much change. I don't know if you've experienced the same, that sometimes growth seems so slow. And that progress seems so limited. And you're wondering, is God doing anything at all? But it seems to me that this is the norm. That God changes us little by little by His grace. And the good news in this is that we're not left alone in this pursuit of pleasing God. As slow as it may be. Paul says at the end there, he says that God gives you His Holy Spirit. And His Spirit is given to us to help us move on in holiness, to become like Him, to live pleasing to Him. So the Spirit is given to drive us to the cross, to see our great need, and to see our greater Savior, so that we may move on into increased sanctification. Now what Paul does then, 
is he says, let me give you an example of one area of life that the sanctification, this, was, this is what it looks like. This is how you'll be different from the world around you. So now, let's pretend we're all back at school in grade 8 and we're doing a grammar lesson, right? So what is a colon? And remember, this is for English, not for life sciences. We know what a colon is in life sciences. What, what is a colon in English? It's two dots, right? One dot on top of the other. And what does a colon imply? What does it say when you see a colon? I can't hear because of the fans, I'll have to tell you. It just means that there is a list coming, right? I'm going to tell you what's coming next. And then, what is a, what is a semicolon? And again, no, not half an intestine. I know what you think. What, what is a semicolon? It's a dot with a comma under it. And why do we need a semicolon? That separates the parts of the list. So the colon says there's a list coming, and the semicolon is now there's two or three parts to this list. All right? And that's what we have in verse 4, 5, and 6 here. We've got a colon and three semicolons. Paul says, let me tell you what sanctification will look like in a particular area. And says, so I'm going to give you three parts of that area so that you know what it looks like. And the area he's going to talk about is the area of sex and sexuality. So let me tell you a little bit about Greek and Roman culture and just let you know what was going on in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. The Romans had a, an incredibly permissive view of sex and sexuality. Basically, any, high, uh, well, any, any Roman man could have sex with anyone who was of a lower status than him. And not just that he could, but it was expected that he would. So much so that rape was not an issue. There really wasn't such a thing as, as rape. Because if you're a higher-ranking Roman guy, well, then it doesn't matter. Anyone is available to you. And so uh, Roman men could have sex with anyone, but Roman women, of course, were not allowed to. If you're married to your husband, you're not allowed to go philandering around because we must be sure who the baby belongs to. And so two very different standards for men and women. So, sex with slaves was completely normal, completely accepted. There were plenty of prostitutes around, and you should avail yourself of them, should you so desire. Many of the prostitutes were connected to temples, and so sex became this, this kind of religious thing that you did, apparently. One of, the, one of the Roman poets wrote this. He says, We have wives to raise our children and manage our homes. We have courtesans for our pleasure, and we have mistresses for companionship. It was just normal. Homosexuality was applauded. And then, of course, there were little boys to, you know, whatever. And, and this wasn't just something that was kind of, you know, winked at, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. It was, it was not just even accepted. It was considered to be completely normal. This is how life worked. And, in fact, the very first person to say that sex is something that should happen between two consenting adults, was one of the church fathers about 150 years after Paul wrote this. Up until that time, the very idea that two people should agree to this was, was a foreign concept. Why? Why do we need two people to agree? Surely one's enough. Sex was about power and control. Sex was an appetite. If you're hungry, have a bar one. If you're feeling sexy, have a prostitute. That's kind of how it worked. 
then there's a guy back then as well who said that, that when it comes to the ladies, um, although they were somewhat limited, he said what would happen is that div- there was an incredibly high rate of divorce in the Roman world. And he said some of our high-ranking ladies count the years by their husbands. So in other words, they wouldn't look back and say, gee, 2012 was a good year. They would look, you and say, look back and say, ah, the year of Fred, I remember that. And that was followed by the year of, of I don't know, remember what I wrote here. The year of Roger, that wasn't, that wasn't so good. And the year of Alma, so they would literally, because they would talk about women having eight husbands in six years. Roman sexual permissiveness wasn't too terribly different from the permissiveness of our own society. And into this very permissive society, Christianity steps in, and God calls his people to live differently. And to be honest, Christianity is, the, is, is what starts off the very first sexual revolution. Christianity is the very first religion or first sexual revolution that says, actually, rape's a bad idea. And actually, one man, one woman for life. That, that's the way to go. And that sets off a complete transformation in culture and society. Now, what you'll notice here is that Paul doesn't say, you need to go out there and tell all those bad, naughty, pagan heathens about how terrible they are and what dreadful things they're doing. What Paul does do is say, you're different. You live differently. And so Paul says, here's what your sanctification looks like in this world of sexual promiscuity. And he says, there's three things. There are three things to look for. Number one, he says, avoid sexual immorality. And if you're wondering what sexual immorality is, it's just a junk drawer term for anything that happens outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. Now, throughout the Bible, God sets the standard, one man, one woman for life. That's how it should go. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And so when someone comes to me and says, well, the Bible doesn't say that I can't live with my girlfriend, I go, yes, it does, right here. Because anything that happens outside of a monogamous marriage is considered sexual immorality. And so Paul says, living to please God means that we live in a way that is different from our surrounding culture. We're different. We don't expect our culture to look the same as us, but... Over the years, as the culture began to see how things worked within the church, the culture began to change. When the rights of the wife in the church were suddenly elevated, and Paul starts saying, husbands, honor your wives and be faithful to her, suddenly the Roman wives outside of the church were going, we quite like that. We quite like the idea that my husband needs to stay at home and look after me and not go running off after prostitutes. And the culture changed. And a sexual revolution took place. Not because the church got sanctimonious. Not because the church has got some kind of weird prudish view on sex and start throwing rocks at the bad guys. But because the church presented a compelling reason to change. And so Paul says avoid sexual immorality. Secondly, he says control yourself. So the one hand is is avoid that and then it's defend this, right? Control yourself. And actually, it's a kind of a funny phrase that he uses, apparently. Apparently, the Greek version says, Paul says, learn to retain your vessel, which is just like very odd. 
And so it gets lots of debate as to what this actually means, what is your vessel. Uh, you know. um, so on the one hand, the NIV translators control your own body. This is your vessel, control it. Learn, to con learn a little bit of self-control and, 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 and deal with your body with honor. But there's another understanding uh, where, it's a, where it's a sense of gain for yourself a wife. Right? And, and honor, not, not control your wife, but then honor your wife. Learn to honor your wife. Which would be completely foreign to Roman culture. Because you would get a wife to raise your kids. And she doesn't need to be honored. And so again, Paul is saying, do something different to what you see in the culture around you. You don't have to give in to every urge. You can be faithful to your wife. Shocking as that sounds, it's possible. And then thirdly, Paul says, don't defraud. Don't take advantage of others. And what Paul is pointing out is that in a permissive culture's view of sex, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a satisfaction of self and a betrayal of others. When, when, when sex is viewed in the way that the Romans used it, in the way our culture uses it, it becomes demeaning. When it's used just for me and my satisfaction, and others are then just a means that I use. So in all of this, Paul is saying, you've been called to live a life that pleases God. He is in the process of changing you by his spirit, and this is what that change will look like in your culture. A different ethic takes place in the church and in your life. A different set of behavior is in place, and that behavior stems from a new heart. And in case you missed it, Paul says, if you reject this, you're not just rejecting me. This is not just me, Paul, making it up. This is not just my opinion. You're rejecting the word of God. And he says, then judgment will come. And we need to hear that. And that's tough. And I could leave it there today, and we could all go home. But what about those of us who haven't been able to live up to the standard. Because we need to be honest, right? That the church is full with broken people who've not been able to live like this. And we could be so easily be the guy who doesn't drink liquid fruit and look down our noses at all those other bad, naughty people who just can't do what I can do. And so what do we say this morning to those who haven't walked this way? Because shame attaches itself to those who, who live by the standards of the culture. And that shame will linger for years and years and years. What do we say? Do we condemn? Do we end it there where I said this morning, oh, God will judge you? Do we leave it there and just like God's going to judge you today? Thank goodness, no. Because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He is enough for the broken. He is enough for the sexually broken. And His grace is enough. His grace is sufficient for those who have defrauded others. His grace is enough for those who have been defrauded, those who have been on the receiving end of being sinned against. His grace is sufficient for those who stray. It is so good that God, Paul ends here by saying that God gives us His Spirit. 
Some of you may remember me telling you this story. It's a repeat of someone else's story, a guy called Matt Chandler in the States. He said years ago in college, he was invited to a... Um, to a Christian like seminar conference thing. He actually went because his friend was playing in the band and he was a Christian and he took a non-Christian friend with him, a young lady, and he was hoping that this would be a great opportunity for witness and evangelism because we're going to see my friend play in the band and then, oh, sneakily, by the way, there'll be a guy who preaches afterwards. He says the band was awesome, but then the guy got up to preach and it was awful. Because the guy got up to preach to a bunch of young people and said, sex is bad, sex is wrong, God will judge you. Um, and then what he did was this. He said, right at the beginning, he took out a rose. And he says, I love my rose. It's a beautiful rose. Smell the rose. It's a lovely rose. And he said, I'm going to pass my rose around. And I want everyone to smell the rose and pass it along. And this is wonderful. And then he did his, so the rose went around a couple of hundred young people. And while it's going around, he's haranguing them about how awful it is. You mustn't do sex. It's bad for you. And then at the end, he says, where's the rose? And some guy at the back's like, here's the rose, and it's like a stem and one petal dangling on it because it's gone around and petals have dropped off along the way. And he says, bring the rose here. And he says, look at this. Do you see this rose? Who would want this rose now? It's a, it's a, this is not even a rose anymore. And he threw it on the ground to make his point. And Matt Chandler sitting in the crowd was going, Jesus wants the rose. It's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus wants the rose. It's not about it's being used and abused and now it's useless. It's not just you've been used and abused and now it's over and it's done with. No, Jesus wants the rose. And that becomes the good and glorious news of the gospel. That no matter how broken we are, and no matter how messed up we are, and no matter how much regression we've taken, whether it's in this area of sexual immorality, or it's in the area of how much we drink at night, or whether it's in the area of our rage and how we control ourselves, or whether it's in the area of, of the things we idolize, Jesus is enough. What a relief. Confession, repentance, turning once more to the cross. And we have to say this, that at one level or another, we all stand guilty. At one level or another, we all stand condemned. Because all of us are immersed in this culture, called to live a different way. And all of, this, of us are in this fight for our sanctification. And, and there is slow progress and rapid regression. And I could wave a big stick this morning and threaten you. But instead, we hold out the hope of the gospel. And I urge you this morning once more to make your way to the cross. And to see there our Savior, who faced the same temptations that we faced, and yet resisted them all. Not just as an example to go, well, Jesus did it, you can too. But to go, Jesus did it and then died in your place because you couldn't. Our shame on his shoulders, removed from us so that he, we can be set free. Our burden lifted, not condemned because we're guilty and we've been bad, but set free by His grace because He is enough. 
And so I urge you today to live a life pleasing to God. I urge you even more to live in light of the gospel of His grace. And so here's where we're going to end this morning. We're going to end with communion. I hope some of you remembered to bring some bread and some grape juice. If you didn't, I'm sorry. I'm hoping that the time will come soon when we will be able to provide it again. But I just thought what a great way for us to end this morning. For us to end at the foot of the cross. Acknowledging our brokenness. Acknowledging our shortcomings, our failures, our shame. Recognizing that that all goes on Him. And to eat and to drink and to know that He has set us free this morning. So if you've got some bread and some grape juice, I'm going to take some bread this morning. And as you, as you hold the bread, as you look at a tiny little piece of bread, I want you to consider the life of Jesus Christ. The life that he lived in sinless perfection, resisting temptation. Adam was in the garden and gave in to temptation. Jesus was in the desert and resisted temptation. That was not the only time that Jesus was tempted. I'm sure he was tempted to just obliterate the disciples time and time again. I'm sure there were ladies that offered themselves to him. He was tempted time and again. And yet, he resisted every temptation. And the sinless, perfect Lamb of God was executed. Though innocent, he died. Once you eat the bread this morning, and be reminded of his perfect life given for you. And then come to the foot of the cross this morning and see the cross once again. See the Savior who hangs there. Though he was sinless, you can see that you're not. That you're amongst the guilty crowd who shouted, crucify him. That it should actually be you on that cross. And yet to see once again your shame lifted from your shoulders and His grace poured out by His blood for you. And you drink and celebrate the forgiveness of our Savior.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is grace enough for the vilest sinner at the foot of the cross. That in eating and drinking this morning, there is a visual reminder again of your cleansing power. That you wash us clean. That you declare us righteous. Lord, I pray, pray for each of us this morning, that we would resist the culture. That we would submit to the power of the Spirit. That we would be drawn to the cross. That we would see the Savior. And that we would move on in holiness and purity. Living lives that would please you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.